When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. This is the beginning of a song from, in my opinion, the most badass woman in the Old Testament, Deborah. And today, we're going to continue our prophet series by fully telling Deborah's story and discussing what it shows us about ourselves and about our God. Uh, this is a continuation of our prophet series, so this is the fourth week, um, and Deborah was a prophet. She was also a judge. She's the only judge who was also a prophet, um, and the only judge who was a female. Uh, for the people of Israel, and her story is a really exciting one. It includes a battle, it includes a struggle with faith and identity within faith, and the importance of relationships. Uh, but before we dive into her story and all of her glory, um, I do want to pray for the sermon this morning, so if y'all will pray with me, I'd appreciate it. Lord, we're so excited to be here. And we know that you are here too. We thank you for joining us in this space. Um, we thank you for meeting us here uh, as we come back throughout um, every, every single Sunday, knowing how much we need to sit in this space and hear your word and remind ourselves who we are, whose we are. Father, I pray that you just permeate this space and that I tell the words of Deborah as they are to be told. And Lord, if you see her today, please let her know we're talking about her. Please let her know that thousands of years later, we are still in awe of her story and still so grateful for the way she lived her life for you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. What transpired to evoke such a powerful uh, song from Deborah? And that's just the beginning. What could have happened in her story? I think before we get to her actual story, we need to start with her setting, where she was at this time. We come across Deborah in the book of Judges. Uh, for those of you with Bibles today or with smartphones, even if your Bible is not on your smartphone, it's easily Googleable by just Googling Judges chapter 4. Um, it is the seventh book of the Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, so from the beginning, Genesis 7 is Judges. And the story of my favorite heroine is only in one chapter of all of Scripture. Her song is in the following chapter to retell the same story. But she is only told about one time. That's it. Judges chapter 4 and her song in Judges chapter 5. Um, and so if I'm given the responsibility of, of talking about Deborah, this great woman, I'm going to tell her full story. I've actually never been so nervous to tell a sermon before because I feel great responsibility in telling her story. Uh, it's, a, it's a sermon that you're not going to hear anything about my own personal life because this is all about Deborah. And Deborah has a lot to show us about who we should be and who God is for us. So we're telling it all. Uh, and that brings us to the book of Judges. The entire book of Judges exists because of a people group called the Israelites. 
The Israelites are known as God's chosen people. They're the descendants of Abraham. When Abraham in Genesis uh, was talking to God, God told him that nations would be blessed because of him. And we can trace it back to that, back to that covenant that God made with Abraham. And if you've never heard of the Israelites before, that's totally fine. Uh, you can easily imagine them if you were to think of a giant group of people with a ridiculous inheritance and really, really bratty behavior. That's them. Okay? You got it. Um, and throughout scripture, we see two things, always. We see the Israelites consistently turning from God, and we see God consistently having mercy on them. Oh, back and forth. You can follow it like this. And so the book of Judges exists because God lost patience with them yet again. Uh, you'll see the way that the Bible is structured. There are judges, right? So there weren't judges before. Uh, there were people leading them, like Joshua. Uh, and then Joshua died. And then God saw they fell away from him. And they, then he said, you know, you need a little more structure. I'm going to give you judges. This should help. That's why you see judges come before kings, because they clearly didn't do so well with the judges, right? They needed even more structure as they continued their journey. Uh, and so he appointed judges to rule over their disputes and govern them with godly wisdom. That was the point of these judges. And there were 15 total judges of Israel. They had different lifespans and different reigns, but all were there to help the Israelites. And so the second judge that you see, so if you turn to that uh, seventh book of the Bible, right after Joshua. You see it follows Joshua because Joshua was the last leader. And then we get to Judges. Uh, you see that Judges chapter, in Judges chapter 3, you see a judge called Ehud. Ehud was the, the second judge, and he was wonderful, right? He helped the Israelites as judges should. Things happened under him. Um, and then we see... Shamgar, who we don't know much about, the Bible has two sentences on him in between Ehud and Deborah, and that's it. We know that he did well, and he conquered 600 Philistines, which, and the Philistines were known to be big, big people, and so that was a big thing to put in scripture, and so apparently the authors of the Bible only thought we needed to know that about him, which is fine. Uh, and then we move on to Deborah, right? Uh, now, all of these judges serve a purpose, and I will never claim to understand the heart of God or why he does things the way that he does, uh, but he will always fully understand me and what I need within the time. And so he knew what his people needed. They needed a taste of life without him, right? Because after these judges go away, it's, it's almost as if like this flash goes off and they forget everything about their life. And then they go and they try to fill the void. And it sounds crazy, except we do it all the time too. Uh, we try to fill the void with anything else but God. And every time a judge died, that's what happened. Uh, they just went off and did crazy things. And then he's like, okay, so you need another one. Uh, and so then we see uh, that he, because of Israelites turning away, he went, God went a little extreme with them. He put them under the rule of someone named King Jabin. When really, he actually put them under the rule of Sisera, King Jabin's military commander. Jabin is up here. He's really far in Israel. He's as far, actually, as you can be north, <laughs> away from everyone. And so Sisera is actually ruling the Israelites. He rules them for 20 years, okay, with an army of 900 chariots. So in our day, we can imagine that as 900 tanks. So the Israelites are now under oppressive rule again. 20 years is a long time, right? 
There could be some all of them ever knew. And so Sisera made life hell for the Israelites. And finally, when they hit the end of the road again, as they often do, we're seeing them come up and come towards God again. They begin to cry out to God as they had done so many times before. But you'll notice their cries to God are not, God, I'm so sorry we have sinned. It's just help. Help us get out of this. They become desperate. And God finally, with his father's heart, turns his ear and says, okay, all right, it's time. And so that's when she enters. And not enter in the sense of presence, because scripture tells us that Deborah was with them during this rule, right? She was a part of their life during this, however long she was alive, we don't know, um, during this 20 years, she was there. So not enter in the sense of presence, but enter in the sense of purpose. This is when Deborah's story starts for us. And so we see that, it's entitled chapter 4, Deborah, should be, uh, in, your, in your Bibles. And it starts with, in verse 4 through 5, Now Deborah, a prophet of the wife Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Now a few points to mention before we move on in scripture. Deborah is introduced as a prophet. So she is both a prophet and a judge for the people, which is special, which is why we've included her within this series. And if you haven't been with us, I want to kind of dispel the word prophet for you um, because it sounds a little intense. A prophet is anyone who claims or knows words from God and pushes them forward without any interruption of self. So a prophet can speak truth to power in a certain situation, and a prophet can also kind of foretell what's going to happen. They don't have to necessarily do both, but they are capable of both. It just depends on how God wants to speak to his people. So that's it. Also, Lapidoth, her husband, is only mentioned this once. And if you know anything about scripture, it's very odd for the husband not to be mentioned more than the wife. And by pure mention of his name, knowing Deborah's role, knowing that she had to be sitting under the palm of Deborah every day for the many disputes of the Israelites. Because remember, they're super messed up. They're coming to her all the time trying to get their disputes solved, trying to understand what is God's purpose within a situation. That's probably a ridiculous situation they've got themselves in. So we know that he understands her wisdom and her leadership. And although many people like to assume that Deborah had children, we don't know. But I kind of hope she did have children because that means that Lapidoth would be the first ever stay-at-home dad recorded in scripture. Like, there's no other way around that. He had to stay home with the kids. Uh, so for that reason, I hope there were lots of littles. Um, and lastly, they sought her out. Deborah did not go to them. I, am, I have this vision of them lining up on the hills to talk to her every day as she's drinking her tea, trying to understand what their current problem is or the problems of the day. Okay, got the setting? You have a visual? All right, let's go back to the story. So let's go to verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. 
I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. So now we see a new character enter, right? Barak. So what Sisera is to King Jabin, Barak is to Deborah. So Barak should be the military commander for the Israelites. He should be the one in charge making sure that they are safe. But you'll notice Deborah has to send for him. Why isn't he there? She has to say, go, go send word to Barak. He's got to come back and do this thing. It's time. So he is all the way up in Naphtali, which in present-day Israel is north. And she is down in the hill country of Ephraim. The calculation is something like 130 miles. How is he protecting his people from 130 miles away? She's the one down there. She's the one hearing the disputes daily. She's the one seeing what Jabin's people are doing. And he's up there with another tribe of Israel. Theologians believe that he retreated to Naphtali because he too had lost sight of God and lost hope of what was going on. Just like everybody else. But Deborah... Deborah never lost sight. She just kept listening to God, and she felt like this was the time, finally, that God was urging her to speak to her people, and she did it. So she sent word and forced him to come home and fight for his people. So let's go back to scripture. Barak, presumably, now back in her presence, right? In verse chapter 8, Barak says to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Deborah responds, certainly I will go with you. But because of the course you are taking, the honor, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Barak and Deborah went to Kadesh. And there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali and 10,000 men went under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now, I kind of get why Barak hesitated. They've been under cruel and oppressive rule for 20 years. They're tired. They're worn down. This could be all many of them even know. Barak knows he's going up against 900 chariots. That's what's kept them in this rule for so long. And he can see them coming because they're going up to, to Mount Tabor, and he can see Sisera and his people coming with all of the things that are to destroy them. I get that. And also, we know he's checked out. His mind's not there. He's not in the zone to be able to address this issue. So Barak basically says, nope, unless you're there with me, I'll go if you go. And Deborah, with her sweetheart, says, of course I'll go. Silly, I'll be there. I wouldn't let you do this on your own. But no, you will not get the credit for this victory. Because it will be a victory, but it will not be in your hands. You are just a part of the story. You are not the end. Okay, story's getting good, right? Uh, because clearly, the one who lacks faith will not be able to obtain the victory. The victory will always go to the faithful. Okay? And Barak probably accepted this and was like, okay, let's do it. And so we go back to verse 11. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing, so stay with me. But this is scripture, and I'm not going to miss any piece of it. So 
Now Haber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hoab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree, and I can't pronounce that word, so I'm not going to try, in Kadesh, near Kadesh. Okay? Now, the Kenites were not a tribe of Israel at first. They were, we see them later absorbed. Uh, Moses, you see mentioned here, Moses is, if you've ever heard the story of the great exodus where the parts of the Red Sea, that's the first moment that the Israelites find freedom, right? And so Moses leads them down this parting of the Red Sea, and they're really excited. And during their exodus, the Kenites, this people group, they were very kind to the Israelites. So that's why later we see them absorbed within a tribe, because they were then given thanks for what they had done previously. And also, many people don't know this, but Moses married outside of the Israelites. He married a Kenite. That's why his father-in-law is a Kenite. Okay? So this will be important later. Just put this one back here, uh, and we'll continue with the story. So verse 12. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera's like, okay, time to go, time to fight. Sisera summoned from Haroshith Hagoim to the Kishon River all of his men and 900 chariots fitted with iron. He took everybody, everybody he had, and he said, this is the fight. They're finally done. This is where we decide who gets this land. And then Deborah says to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So you with me? Sisera learns that Barak is ready to fight. So he says, okay, I'm bringing everyone. And then Barak most likely sees them all coming, and Deborah's got to be like, go, this is time. And he's like, oh, okay, did you see that? Uh, and then he gets his wits about him again and says, okay, let's do it. Hasn't the Lord already gone ahead? Yes, of course he has. Let's do this. So the moment that Barak finally changes his presence into a state of faith and action, God meets him there and helps him defeat 900 chariots. That's insane. Think of all of those people. But notice, notice, all of Sisera's men have been killed. And what does Sisera do? He flees. He sees that he is not going to win this. So he gets up and he runs, leaving his chariot. Because remember, the Lord never anticipated giving Barak the victory. It was always going to go to a woman. Now, this is when it gets a little weird. So if this is your first time in church, I'm so sorry. Uh, but stay with me. So Barak then pursued the chariots and army as far as Haroshith Hagoim, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, as we mentioned, fled on foot to the tent of Yael. And when the wife of Herber, the Kenite, remember them? Because there was an alliance between Jabin, the overall king that Cicero was under command of, and the family of Herber the Kenite. So for whatever reason, scripture doesn't tell us, these Kenites within this area had an alliance 
with King Jabin, the one who was oppressing the Israelites. We're not sure why that was or how strong that allegiance was, but it existed. And so when he sees, when Sisera sees the tent of Yael and Herber, he runs to it and says, I can take refuge in that tent. I know those people. They're going to keep me safe. So that's when he went to the tent and he met Yael. And so Yael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. And verse 19 goes on to say, I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she opened up a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. So we have a very intimate setting of Yael and Sisera. Sisera is now laying down with a blanket, telling her, don't tell anyone, right? Don't tell anyone. Now, a few things. I think that these statements from Sisera of give me some water, give me some, I'm thirsty, and don't tell anyone I'm here were actually said in the same breath. Because you'll notice <laughs> she does not give him water. Nope. She goes straight to give him milk. Because I think she realized this light bulb went off. And she's like, well, if you're here and you're looking for refuge and you don't want anyone to find you, say he didn't say that. Say he just said, I need to take a nap. Fine, maybe the battle's done. But if you're still worried about somebody finding you, the battle is not over. And then she had this thought, maybe, maybe little Israel actually beat everyone but you. Maybe you're the last one left, right? And so, instead of giving him water, she gives him milk. And like a sweet little baby with warm milk, he gets milk drunk and falls right asleep, right? And also, something that a lot of people don't know, but tents back in the day, it was the, the female's job to put up the tent. And so, people often look at this story and think of her with the, you know, the things that she's about to do and... They're like, well, why would a woman know anything about a tent? And it was actually their responsibility, which surprised me too. Because um, then we see how adept she is at all things tent-related. Okay, uh, new church people, just ignore this part. Uh, but J.L., Yale, Herber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Yael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I imagine very casually. I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. Now, why did she do this? Uh, first of all, it's, it's not totally clear. Um, there was an alliance, and also there was an opportunity, right? She saw the opportunity light bulb of deciding, do I stay with this losing party, or do I actually go with the Israelites who are gaining more ground? Because property is everything, just like it is now. So the more ground they can gain as Israelites, the more they can take from the other, the other people, the more power they have. And so she decided to side with the powerful, or what was perceived to be the powerful in this situation. Now, y'all can ask her if you ever meet her, but I think that that's probably what happened. 
And so after that, after he, he realized, yes, okay, you gave it to a woman, he's done, battle's over, we won. He goes back to all of his people, and on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. And God gave them the victory. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. That is the continuation of Deborah's song. And if you look in chapter 5, it's the same story retold, and she actually calls out the tribes who did not join them. She calls them out so that his, the history books would know who actually fought that day, who showed up for God's army that day, and who stayed back. So you can read, she was also a great poet, and so she decided to say it in a different way, uh, to be able to retell her story on her own. Now, if y'all were here last week, Devin preached, and I really, really enjoyed what he said about the Israelites as he was talking. He said that oftentimes in, in Christian churches, we talk about the Israelites, and we talk about them like they're us, like we are them somehow. We're not. The Bible was written about real people. Deborah walked this earth. She was a real human, right? It was about real people in certain situations, and it speaks to us depending on our situation. But it was written for a specific time and a specific purpose. And our job as we pick up this holy book is to figure out things about human nature and figure out things about God's heart. These are the insights that scripture gives us. It doesn't say you are these people. Those people were those people. You are you. That's different. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you to go be Deborah or ask where our Debras are in our church today. Deborah was amazing. She was calm. She was fierce, unwavering in her commitment to God despite all of the great odds against her. And just so it's clear, she was plan A. A lot of people think that because Barak didn't want to fight, he was unwilling at first, God then went to his second choice, Deborah. Do you honestly think that the writers, the patriarchal writers of scripture, if that were true, they would leave it out? Really? Absolutely not. It was always Deborah. She was plan A. And as much as I want you to be like Deborah, you are not Deborah. I don't want you to think to leave here and say, how can I be a Deborah? Because you can't be Deborah. You just can't. There was one Deborah. She's in heaven. She lived a great life, and we get to learn from her story. And although I don't know her personally, I can't imagine that she would want generations of people going around trying to be her, forgetting to be themselves. Because we're going to miss out on a lot if we just look at these stories and try to emulate to the T who these people are. She did what her giftings allowed, and we have to do the same. So don't be Deborah, but learn from Deborah. And I think her story teaches us two significant things, one about ourselves and one about God. About ourselves, I, I think it teaches us that we are all influencers. 
I know your mind is going through your strengths finder assessment and your disc assessment and you're thinking, nope, that's not one of my five. Because <laughs> you're all in DC, I know. Um, but it's true. As Christians, we are inherently influencers. We have to be. It is by our makeup that we are influencers of culture and we are to bring light into darkness. And it's no coincidence that in influencing requires human connection, relationship. That is by design because when we are fully following God, God is working on us through each other. That's how it works. I mean, without influence, this story doesn't work. Deborah standing firm in her belief that God is calling to Israel to rise and influencing Barak to take his place. You need both people. But not just Deborah to Barak, it's Deborah to Yael and Barak to Deborah. Him showing, showing up and going to battle is assurance that he believes in her words from God and they are on the Lord's path together. And think of when Deborah lived. Women were property. Women were not given any type of authority. If Deborah can be an influencer, you have no excuse. So who are the influencers in your life? Who is God trying to speak to you through? And are you letting that sink in? I think sometimes we pull a Barack and we look at years of no movement and the years of disappointment. And we really need a Deborah-type influence to say, now, now is the time. Are you ready? Hasn't God gone before you already? And that leads us to what I think this story teaches us about God. God responds to the faithful. How many times have we heard, God just needs you to show up? He'll do the rest. Just show up. Now, nice thought, right? But anyone who's ever needed anything from anyone knows the huge holes in that logic, right? We just need people to show up at church, not do anything, just show up. You don't even have to be happy to be here. All of this will just happen. No. Right? And that, that, that thought process works if you need to show up and be fed. If it requires nothing from you and you need to absorb, sure, just show up and absorb. But faith, faith requires action. There is no way around it. And when God sees the faithful moving, he responds with backup. He can't not show up. It's not in his nature to abandon his children. And we need that transition from showing up to responding to faith. And that's exactly why Barak is mentioned in the famous chapter of Hebrews 11. If you ever get a chance, go to Hebrews 11 and look. You'll, it's entitled Faith in Action. And it's a list of all of these faithful people. And at first when I read it, I was like, how dare Barak be in here and not Deborah? How dare? Right? Because Deborah, right? But a closer look at that chapter and you'll realize that everyone listed in Hebrews 11 has this very interesting story of showing up, doubting, and then moving to faith in action. Every single one was a doubter. Did not think they were fit for the job and then God changed that. And the thing is, Deborah's not there because she showed up faithful. There's no need to include her in that. She was born faithful. That's why we don't know anything about her past. This is what we needed to know about her. She was always like this. And that's why scripture just tells us this one fleeting chapter. Always a woman of God. But you'll notice that both are glorified in the end. It doesn't matter how you start. It matters how you finish. And it also doesn't matter how long it takes you to get there. God is still faithful when you arrive. 
He responds to the faithful, and our influence over each other gives us faith for this battle and every other battle. So friends, during this sweet month of Sabbath, which I really hope you are taking advantage of and resting or kayaking for active people, whatever y'all do to Sabbath, uh, reading, I hope that you're doing that, but I hope that during this period, you have time to ask yourselves hard questions, like, am I just showing up? Or am I showing up faithful? And if I'm just showing up, why is that? Have I lost sight of God? Have I lost sight of self? Am I disappointed? You need to ask yourselves these questions, or else you're going to be with Israel for 20 years, just sitting and retreating to the north of Israel because you don't want to deal with anything. Are you showing up or are you showing up faithful? Knowing that regardless of where you fall, God has placed influencers in your life to either bring you to that place of faith and action or keep you there. Find those people. And just as every single sermon should cause life change in the people who hear it, the impact of every influencer should too. That should be the result always. And so, in closing, I would love to pray that blessing over all of us. That we recognize where we are, we recognize how we're showing up, and we open our eyes to the impact of the influencers around us. So please join me. God, we thank you. We thank you for each and every person who showed up in this room today to learn about one of your great warriors. We thank you for the ways that Deborah's story and that Barack's story continue to influence us and teach us more about your heart, Lord. I pray, Lord, as we leave this place, each and every person rests those questions on their heart and wrestles with you about those questions, coming to you honestly, asking, how am I showing up? Am I faithful to you, really? Let them sit and absorb and know that the journey is always going to be a journey with you and that you will respond to the faithful. In your name we pray. Amen.